1: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
4: And I'm Julie Douglas.
2: Julie, do you have any bat houses in your yard, you know, on your trees?
4: I don't have any bat houses, but I have a friend with bat houses.
2: Uh, did do they actually have bats living in them because that's the hard, any, anybody can buy them at the Lowe's or Home Depot and nail them to trees, but, yeah. but you got to nail them in just the right place so that the sun's hitting them at the right time so they're just they're warmed enough that and they're they're high enough off the ground that they're attractive mm-hmm. uh, real estate opportunities for the bat world.
4: I believe her bat habitat has been successful. Okay. She's a bat devotee.
2: Because my my uh, my previous house, it, I, I built one of these things. I nailed it up there. Mm-hmm. I was really hopeful we'd get some bats uh, zipping around the backyard, eating up insects. never happened. So I had like a bat foreclosure in my backyard. <laughs>
4: bat weeds growing all yeah. over it. Yeah. All the other birds just kind of roosting on it.
2: Yeah. It just some, like wasps or something moving into it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Um, well, do you have any direct like bat experiences? Like you've ever been attacked by a bat, which is highly <laughs> unusual, by the way. Yeah.
2: Uh, no, no, no! I do not have any uh, bat attack stories. I've some, uh, some had some cool encounters with bats on trips. When uh, when my wife and I went to Costa Rica, we got to see. Uh, we went on one of these night nature hikes in the jungle, and we got to see bats zipping down and uh, skimming fish, uh, little bitty fish off yeah. the top of a pond. That yeah. was nice. And when uh, we went on our honeymoon in, um, in Mexico, uh, we uh, there were fruit bats in the area. And, uh, and we were talking to some of the other people who were staying there. Everyone was in kind of like a little hut, bungalow type of a thing. And we were noticing that, that they had plastic uh, screens up, um, uh, high up in the roof. Uh, and you're thinking, oh, well, I guess that's to keep wind from blowing in or whatever. But uh, it was there to keep the fruit bats from coming in there and, uh, and roosting. Because uh, uh, if they could, yeah. they would get into the huts, they would roost up there, and then they would just poop all over the place. So I never got to see the fruit bats, but there are lots of... Stories about them. I kept thinking, "Ah, oh, if I if I look closely, I'll see them." And there is nothing like seeing some some bats flying around. If you're, you know, just at the the sun's going down, and out of the corner of your eyes, you might might just think oh, birds or insects, but then you start noticing and you realize, "Oh, the bats are out, and it's it's beautiful." I, I remember seeing some of the Grand Canyon, and mm-hmm. that was that was just really really beautiful. To yeah.
4: I was thinking like, and and of course, that's a wonderful backdrop to see it, but I was thinking even in my suburban upbringing, you know, at night under the lights, just Mm -hmm. seeing them swarm around was like this incredible thing, and I was very curious about them. And I remember seeing them at a zoo and seeing them up close and being completely just blown away because in front of me was what looked like to be a common ancestor, right? You look at these guys really closely and these gals, and uh some of the physiology you after
2: them, and you said said grandfather or i, or...
4: I did and it went yes <laughs> um it actually sounded like a burp maybe it burped at me i don't know but you look at the physiology of these guys and then you really began to see um some some interesting traits and and i'm not not to be crass but i mean the the one that i really got to look at <laughs> closely it, the penis was very apparent uh, so, mm. you begin to look at that in the physiology of the wings, and we'll talk more about this. Right. The arms and the fingers that, that seem to be, uh, very similar to ours, and you begin to think, wow, this creature is, is very unique, not yeah, just it's much because much more than
2: just like a winged mouse, uh, or anything like that.
4: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's what people tend to think of when yeah, they Winged think rodent. Of, yeah, winged yeah. Ro- It is not. It is far more complex and, and unique, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but let's talk about the folklore.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Behind the bat. Well, um, it, it's the most obvious thing that comes to people's mind, especially Western, Western minds, uh, is, of course, that the bat is a symbol of, of evil. The, the bat is a symbol of, of, uh, of vampires in disguise. And a lot of this goes to the fact that you have you have bats that, when the sun goes down, they emerge from caves. So mm-hmm. they're emerging from the underworld when God's light leaves us. They're flying around in the dark. And, of course, we end up with all sorts of stories about them flying into people's hair or attacking people, which most of that is, is hooey. But certainly, you do have vampire bats mm-hmm. that will, if given the opportunity, lap up a little human blood. Um, or cow blood. or ca- Well, cows uh, primarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're their, their more favored meal. But uh, but then you also have bats. Bats are, of course, susceptible to rabies. So you mm-hmm. will have encounter- situations where bats will become rabid and will become a problem. But... Um, but yeah, so so evil bats easy to wrap your head around that because they're emerging from the underworld and they're flying over the place.
4: Well, and the the vampire bats, as you had um, just brought up, have like you know the, I guess you could say the fangs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you look at them and you can see fifteenth sixteenth century settlers yeah. in the United States, particularly when you begin to see some of this this folk- folklore really start to come up, and uh, perhaps even witnessing one of your cows being. You know, blood sucked.
2: Yeah, and, and of uh, course th- your your cow being attacked and especially back in the day, I mean that was that was severe. That was major business. Right. I mean you would have people would be brought up on witchcraft trials due to animal deaths because I mean in part because you know you're living in a an unenlightened time with all of this folklore, but also because it's serious business. That's your livelihood out there. And something's uh, drinking its blood.
4: Yeah, so you can see how these stories start to get um, you know, bandied about, and then you've got this sort of vampire mythology. Mm-hmm. And, of course, 1897, you've got Bram Stoker's Dracula, and forevermore do you have the bat and the vampire inextricably linked together.
2: Now, it's interesting um, to, to, to quickly dive out of folklore and then scurry back into it. Um we have about uh, we have over a thousand, over eleven 1, hundred different species of bats in the mm-hmm. world. Um, they make up uh, about a quarter of all mammal species, uh, and there are forty five different species of bats alone in the United States and Canada alone. And uh, if we look at bats overall, we have megabats, which are the large bats that are found in old world tropical rainforest, Australia, Asia, Africa, and then you have the microbats, which mm-hmm. are the ones that are going to occur, um, you know, in the United States, uh, Western world, etc. So it, it's interesting to me that in those western, the western, uh, environments where you have the microbats, that's mm-hmm. where you see the, the evil ideas come to mind. Uh, but, uh, when you're dealing with the mega bats, the, uh, which, which generally we're, we're talking about fruit eating bats, uh, large wolfish looking creatures, which...
4: Long muzzle.
2: Long muzzle, which in a way could conceivably look a little creepier because they're bigger. Mm-hmm. And, but, uh, but, but, uh, also those, these are the places where you find, uh, uh, more benevolent versions of the bat in folklore. For instance, in uh, Mayan mythology, they had a they had a bat god, um, which was uh, named uh, Kamazots, um, and uh, and Kamazots means death bat. So I guess he, well, he wasn't completely benevolent, but still, <laughs> uh, you know, he was big enough to be a god. He wasn't reduced to demonhood. He was uh, he was a major player in the uh, local cosmology. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Chinese mythology sheds a positive light on the bats, where they're viewed as uh, symbols of good luck. And both the Apache and uh, Cherokee peoples of North America enjoyed uh, the bat and viewed their presence as a symbol that something good was about to happen. So it was a a good omen to see the bat in the sky, which is the way I... I feel like I tend to, to look at them. You know, if I if I notice bats around, it's that's a good day, right?
4: Yeah, and we'll talk about more about the benefits of bats and why they're really important to uh, the ecosystem. But uh, let's talk a little bit more about the physical description of bats. Um, as you had said, there's more than a thousand different species, mm-hmm. and the sizes vary greatly. The smallest is the bumblebee bat, and that oh. has I know adorable, right? A six-inch wingspan, while a Malayan flying fox's wingspan is six feet wide, which might strike terror into the heart if you happen to just look up in the night sky, uh, but still fascinating the the sort of variety here.
2: Oh, real quick the uh, the bumblebee bat, also known as Kitty's hognose bat, which uh, <laughs> which which draws an important point about the whole bats are evil kind yeah, of thing yeah. is that bats are often to to humanize, eyes um, rather pr- pr- possibly ugly to mm-hmm. behold or uh, or at least their their features are often uh, exaggerated. Whereas a, a mouse we don't know what a mouse looks like and certainly a lot of the the mega bats they have very uh, their, their heads tend to resemble foxes and mice mm-hmm. a little more traditional if you will whereas the micro bats you see some crazy stuff like uh, like the wrinkle face bat which we'll discuss later
4: yeah and I did want to um, mention the the mega Chiroptera. that's uh, that's what you're referring to the the mm-hmm. megas there Um as you said, the flying fox, these these guys are mostly vegetarians, and they do feed on fruit and pollen, hence your point. Uh, they seem to have a little bit better of a reputation um, in its parts of the world. And then the microcryptoria is, as you said, you know, it's smaller, and it's got the pug-nosed dog look, mm-hmm. and it, it's a little bit otter looking, and they're found all around the world, and they are carnivores, and they feed primarily on insects. Right. And I did want to point out that bats belong to their own taxonic grouping, uh, Chiroptera, mm-hmm. which means wing hand. Yeah. So we'll, we'll check. We'll check out that little wing hand here in a moment. Yeah,
2: that's it's it's really fascinating. But uh, but first, let's take a. We we've walked through folklore. We've walked through a little bit of uh, taxonomy. Now let's tiptoe just a little bit through philosophy before we really get into. Uh, the world of the bat. Because as, as we're putting all this together, and we're coming this from a, a human perspective, uh, so we're, we're bringing our human baggage with us, and we're trying to understand, in a sense, what it is to be a bat. What is the bat experience? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's actually a really awesome piece of philosophical pondering uh, from American uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel. It was published in the Philosophical Review back in 1974. And, it's, um, and and he basically asks the question, what is it like to be a bat? And it's, it's ultimately about the limits of of our, of our human perspective and about how when we're trying to imagine an alien perspective, be it that of a bat, that of your dog, your cat, that of a potential extraterrestrial species, there, there are certain walls there that we just can't get past. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to read just a quick uh, quote from it here, Nagel says, Bats, although more closely related to us, uh, than those other species, nevertheless, present a range of activity and a sensory apparatus so different from ours that the problem I want to pose is exceptionally vivid. Even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat, I love that image, uh, <laughs> <laughs> knows uh, what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. And then he goes on to say, Bat sonar, though clearly a form of perception, is not similar in its operation to any sense that we possess, and there is no reason to suppose that it is subjectively like anything we can experience or imagine. This appears to create difficulties for the notion of what it is like to be a bat.
4: And what I think is interesting about that is that, and yet we we can't help but try. I mean, we're going to try to open that oh, door yeah. just a little bit, squeak through and get into this, because it's so fascinating to me. I was thinking about it... in the same terms of when we were talking about cephalopods, and our inability to truly understand them because they're communicating in a way that, that we would never be able yeah, to... Yeah, they're
2: living in a different sensory world.
4: Understand, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And they are experiencing a color spectrum that we can't even begin to understand yeah. because we don't have, have the machinery for it. Um, that being said, though, that we can kind of get a glimpse into the world of bats And how very cool it is. And we will talk about echolocation uh, in this podcast, but we have another one coming up that is devoted entirely to that. uh, Because you talk about the doors of perception flying open uh, when it comes to bats and their ability to see, and I'm saying that in in quote marks. uh, It is amazing
2: stuff. Yeah. So where do bats come from? They didn't just fly out of a hole in the underworld one day. They, of course, evolved like everything else on Earth. And uh, as best we can tell from fossil evidence, they came about about 50 million years ago. That's about how far back we have to look to, uh, and find uh, evidence for bat-like flying mammals. Uh, they probably started off in the trees, we think, insect mm-hmm. uh, eating little tree creatures and then they began to really go after a key market because evolution, of course, is always about and I'm going to anthropomorphize evolution a little bit here, uh, which I can't help but do, but, uh, but evolution is all about going after a market Doing what's work, <laughs> yeah. what works, and I mean it's just extreme business savvy. So you have the bats, right? And what is this the, this vital market that they need to get into? They want to eat insects. They need to eat insects. Yeah. that's their that's their thing. But there's a whole period of time. Um, a, a, re- a recurring period of time in which the market's wide open. It's just right for the picking. They just need the right evolutionary adaptations to go after it.
4: All right. So in other words, they show up on the scene 50 million years ago, and birds are already well-established, and yeah. they're eating up all of all of the prey, right? Yeah. And so they look to the night sky, and they say, ah, I see a smorgasbord of insects there, if only I could get to them. And uh, essentially this is where you begin to see where the bat becomes an extremely successful mammal uh, because it is uh, able to then uh, basically evolve into flight, which Mm -hmm. we'll talk about in a little bit uh, but also it becomes a nocturnal creature who can hunt at night, get all of those insects but also it's uh, it's able to use the cover of night uh, from other predators so it doesn't get eaten up
2: yeah, I mean, obviously there are nocturnal birds. You have owls uh, and, and, and and some other creatures, uh, um, avian creatures, that, uh, that, that that do their thing at night. But for the most part, this was a wide open space, so bats moved into it, and and really they came to own the night. I mean, they're they're certainly preyed on by some creatures, but uh, but they're really ruling it out there, and have arguably become one of one of if not the most successful mammals on the planet.
4: Yes, 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 for this very reason.
2: I mean, you can certainly you, the argument can fall to, you know, rat versus bat. You could maybe make a, an argument for domestic cat as well, but, but that's a slightly different business model.
4: Yeah, and a, whole, a whole other yeah. podcast coming up, by the way. Well,
2: certainly both the bats, the, both the rats and the cats uh, owe a certain amount of their success to humans. But uh, but the bats, they're doing it all by wings. So, so certainly you can give the natural. Uh, bump to them in the contest
4: yeah um, this is from the Department of Energy ask a scientist Mike Stewart says that the night is really a win-win proposition for bats because they are better suited um, as, as a mammal um, to the night because they're expending so much energy to stay in flight so the cool air would help them to shed excess body heat mm-hmm. so that's that's a boon to them and because the night air is cooler and has a higher density than the hot air during the day it makes it easier to derive lift by flapping wings and cool denser air and again we'll talk about the wing situation in a bit but as we know bats aren't constructed like uh, birds so they need all the help they can get in the lift department and then echolocation is um, is one of two main Adaptions again here that make bats such successful nocturnal creatures.
2: Yeah, it's worth noting. There's no way a bat is going to outfly a bird. And if you've uh, if you've ever watched Attenborough's uh, The Life of Mammals, there's um, there's or well, now I can't remember if this was an episode of The Life of Mammals or The Life of Birds, but uh, one of those two series. Go ahead, just go watch them both. Uh, the, you, you get to see this in action as um, as uh, mega uh, bats. I forget which kind of fruit bat it was. Um, I just have a terrible time if they're up against predatory birds during the daylight uh, they, right. they swoop in and just take them because they're just, they're just a total on a total different level performance wise but at night they're the they're the top flyer
4: but it's really echolocation that makes them this standout mammal right because their ability this ability that they have evolved makes them super successful
2: yeah they can navigate this world of night they can find these often tiny, very, very tiny creatures, uh, flitting about out there in the dark. Mm-hmm. They're able to, z- to zero in on them and swoop in for the kill.
4: All right, let's do a little brief overview of echolocation. And again, we won't go into it too much because we have a podcast devoted entirely to it. It is that fascinating. Tom Harris um, is a How Stuff Works writer, and he has an excellent "How Bats Work" article. So check that mm-hmm. out. But he asked you to imagine an echo canyon when you think about echolocation.
2: And it's like a canyon, right? that you shout in. Echo,
4: echo. Yeah. Oh, yes. So I'm thinking at the Grand Canyon. I don't okay. know. I've never actually tried that. Um, but uh, at, at the Grand Canyon, I should say. When you shout, you produce a sound that, um, that makes sound waves, obviously, and that travels across the canyon. And then the rock face on the opposite side of the canyon deflects the air pressure energy of the sound wave so that it begins moving in the opposite direction, heading back to you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're in an area where atmosp- atmospheric pressure... When an air composition is constant, sound waves always move at the same speed. And if you knew the speed of sound in the area and you had a very precise stopwatch, for instance, you could use sound to determine the distance across the canyon. And he says this is the basic principle of echolocation. Bats are making sounds the same way that we do by moving air past their vibrating vocal cords. And some bats emit the sounds from their mouth, which they hold open as they fly, and others emit sounds through their nose.
2: So, yeah, it's the basic principle of radar and sonar. I'm sending out these waves. Mm-hmm. They're bouncing off something. And uh, in sonar and radar, you have uh, either you know a guy sitting there with a stopwatch or more, more likely uh, a machine that's interpreting that data and letting you know what distance uh, has been traversed. With the bat, of course, it's all taking place in the brain.
4: Yeah, something that we couldn't... Never do right? All, right all this different data coming back at them, and, and
2: it, it puts us back in that Nagel area of how would we how do we even imagine that we we can't right
4: right because yeah. that that is something that is specific to them and, and second nature of course the way that they can sit there in abstract um, about this data that's coming in all right so let's take a quick break but when we get back we will talk about these finger like uh, bones in the bat's wings that are so wonderful and creepy and important to
0: their ability to fly. Shout
2: out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. All right we're back, and oh yeah we're about to take wing with the bat and if you look at uh, at any skeletal layout of the bat and uh, and there's one with uh, on our uh, how stuff works uh, how bats work article you'll see that it it really it's not a situation of uh and this is something that we kind of get that uh, gets complicated with all of our visions of like bat like wings and imagined mm-hmm. creatures and dragons you tend to see a creature that has uh you know, more like Batman, you know, where he has like a more like a flying squirrel, where he just has a bunch of webbing under his arms. But most of what you're seeing with the bat's wings, those are fingers. So that's it's a it's a hand that has become wing.
4: Yeah, and if you look at the skeletal system, you will see what looks to be like arms on on the wing, stretched mm-hmm. out on either side, and then five fingers draping from that. Um, and it's just, it's amazing because what it's doing is it's creating sort of like these spokes, just like they, uh, spokes for an umbrella. Right. In terms of giving it structure, but also mobility.
2: Yeah. And then you have this webbing in between that, of course, becomes the, the wing surface. And, uh, and that material also has a, it's re- really remarkable and it has a, it, it heals really swiftly as it would need to do because if you get that, that stuff gets torn or, or, um, or bitten or clawed at in any way, they need that to heal up pronto so that they can fly again.
4: Yeah, in that webbing, that elastic skin stretches from the edge of the forelimb all the way to the tip of an elongated little finger, and then the wing attaches to the lateral side of the body and lower limb down the ankle. And some bats also have a membrane between their legs connecting to the tail. And this hind leg wing integration it is very different from a bird, obviously, and as we had mentioned, it's a trait that's shared with gliders.
2: So if we look at the, the evolutionary flow of this, mm-hmm. uh, we can easily imagine a creature in the distant past, it eats insects. It, it crawls up trees to eat insects. Eventually, it takes to gliding uh, to catch more insects. And over time, that uh, evolves into a full-blown sense of flight, uh, ability to fly and catch things in the night.
4: Yeah, because really, what you're looking at when you're looking at bat wing, you see that it is a modified mammalian limb. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about something called the rogue finger gene.
2: Yeah, this is pretty pretty crazy. Uh, you know, the more we learn about uh, about genetics, we it gets to where we can pinpoint individual genes that uh, that if if present, if on, uh, can uh, can cause remarkable uh, changes in physiology, and. Uh, There's actually a study from Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, and they pinpointed the single gene that allows bats to grow wings and fly, and it's called BMP2, and it's uh, one of a family of genes uh, that are important for limb development in mammals. So you find it in bats, but you don't find it in mice.
4: Yeah, and it's really cool because it does get, it does sort of pinpoint how bats evolve Because the problem here is that we have um, a bit of a gap in the fossil record, mm-hmm. right? So we don't necessarily know what what sort of in between animal, I guess you could say, right. bats truly evolved from. But knowing this, we can we can point to the fact that um, that bats did. Have this gene, or, or they do have this gene, and it allowed that elongation of these finger bones, which was really important in creating a wing with a high aspect ratio. Meaning that all of a sudden, the longer you know your um, these fingers get, and the more membrane, then the easier it is to get lift and to take off as a creature. Mm-hmm. So, so important because remember, bats are the only group of mammals to have evolved power powered flight. So this is a really important aspect of it. And in fact, to get a real good sense of of how this gene um, has affected the growth of this um, bat's limbs, if you do look at a skeletal system of them, what becomes apparent, um, is that it, it, it's so exaggerated these these four limbs that it sort of looks like Edward Scissorhands. It does, yeah, yeah. So imagine that, and then also know that scientists have tinkered with some mice to mess with this gene to see if they if they reduced it, if they took it out of the sequence, what would happen. Mm-hmm. And they did find that um, with with mice that they could get something like a 6% increase in limbs when they tinkered with it. The reason they used mice is because, again, if you look at a mouse, um, very similar to the physiology, the basic physiology, of course, um, the, as with a bat. And so when they began to see that increase, they said, wow, that doesn't seem like much. But if you had a 6% increase in the limbs of a human, they would grow something like 4 inches.
2: We've got to figure out how to this into basketball players
4: i know uh, right right
2: so again powered flight bats not as good at this as birds mm-hmm. uh, powered flight r- involves a tremendous amount of energy um, i mean the case can be made that it's really not an energy efficient um, means of flight but it's the the only thing that the nature can really achieve on this yeah. planet anyway so uh it's, it's worth noting that uh, that on the whole birds versus bats thing you watch any bird most birds anyway don't have any real problem taking off from the ground um it's more of a struggle for some than than for others so some have to really get kind of a running start at it but most of the birds that you're going to see around your backyard they can just take right off not so with the bat uh which is why why you if you go to a bat cave or if you or even just a i say a tree where you'll find fruit brats, bats roosting or the top of a bungalow in mexico they're they're hanging up there right and they're they're but part of the advantage here, there are a number of advantages to, to roosting in this uh, this position, but one of them is that they can drop right down into mm-hmm. flight. They're, they just use gravity to achieve, um, to achieve that initial uh, boost of lift as opposed to having to painstakingly flap their wings and get nowhere on the ground.
4: Or even try sort of a running lift because yeah. they have such short hind legs that they can't even do that.
2: Yeah, it, it always reminds me of there was a, a plane back in... Uh, uh, it was an experimental aircraft back in uh, 1948, 1949, called the XF-85 Goblin. Uh, some of you airplane buffs might be familiar with it. And it was a stubby little plane, and the idea that it was a parasitic fighter, that it would uh, you would stow this in the belly of a bomber, and then a bomber... Uh, on a long uh, bombing run, it could. Uh, if there was attacked by fighter planes, they could deploy this guy to go out and deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it it was sort of launched in a similar way. They would kind of hang it down from the uh, fr- from uh, from the bomb bay and then just let it drop, and then it would achieve flight. Wow. Yeah.
4: See, I mean, it's, uh, do you think they took that example uh, from nature?
2: I don't know. You know, I mean, on a in a sense, they did. I mean, it's the, the same. Some of the same physics. Yeah. A very I mean, just like point, sonar
4: yeah. is taken from, from ba- yeah. basically echolocation. All right, let's talk about uh, how these guys feed. And we had mentioned the vampire uh, bat, but I did want to point out that most of the bats are insectivores, mm-hmm. and meaning that they eat insects. And the brown bat, which is indigenous to North America, can catch and eat as many as 1,200 Twelve hundred mosquitoes in one hour.
2: Exactly. That's why I wanted these guys living in my backyard. I get it, right? But they're so picky.
4: I know, and it's it's particularly in conditions like we've had here Mm -hmm. in the South, where there's just—I mean, it's been mosquito crazy. It's been—they've been been so excited. Um, This is really important to the ecosystem, and and of course, to my legs um, not becoming devoured. But I do want to mention too that there is Bracken Cave in Texas and that contains more than twenty million bats. Wow. Imagine the amount of guano in that one. And uh they eat about two hundred tons of insects every night.
2: Nice. Mm-hmm. Imagine, yeah, without those guys doing their job, everything would just get out of whack fast. Yep. But not everyone eats uh, insects. Again, you have the vampire bat, which is is the only mammal that lives exclusively on blood. And uh and, it, and typically these things gather in colonies of about 100 animals, sometimes they live in groups of a 1,000 or more. And uh, they, they say that in one year, uh, a 100-strong bat colony can drink the blood of 25 cows. And now, yeah, and yeah.
4: they're not tapping the, the, the cows out here. I mean, the, they drink them, a little bit of their blood, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, they're draining them.
2: It's almost a, well, not really a parasitic relationship, but it, it, they're, they, they conserve the cows. They are, in a way, they're milking the cow, and they want that cow to be there tomorrow and the next night and the next right. night when they come back for more and more blood but what's uh, one thing that I was really uh, surprised by because I guess I you know I knew about vampire bats i 've always known about vampire bats, but i didn 't really know all the hard facts about them, like for instance that vampire bats strike their victim from the ground mm-hmm. which is uh, which is something you in the movies you see like vampire bats are swooping around the the heroine 's head and she 's screaming right. But uh, the tactic is a bit different. The idea is to land uh, near the prey, and then creep up to it on all fours, and with that kind of awkward bat crawl um, that Batman never seems to really use. Uh, You know, he's all into emulating the bat, but he doesn't really do the the no, we've never seen bat crawl. Yeah. So um, yeah. So the bat has uh, it's crawling up to the the cow, and then the bat will uh, use a heat sensor on its nose that points it toward the spot where the warm blood is flowing just beneath the skin, and then it'll uh, leap up and it'll use its uh, its sharp little razor teeth uh, to open up a little uh, tap, if you will, mm-hmm. and then uh, and it's uh, will begin lapping at the blood, and its saliva prevents the blood from clotting uh, while it's feeding.
4: It actually has a specialized tongue to lap up the blood as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's got little rivulets in it. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's found in Mexico, Central America, and South America.
2: And then you also uh, another important thing. Not only are bats doing us a huge service in curbing insect populations, but they're also uh, in, in some areas major pollinators. Uh, they are bats that drink nectar, and uh, uh, and they're important pollinators of say like the organ pipe cactus uh, in the United States. Uh, they're also pollinators of really important cash crops like mango, cashew, uh, balsa, agave. Bananas, uh, very important, and, and in some cases you actually have bats that are the primary pollinators of a of, an, of a plant. So it's a, it's just a one-to-one relationship between these two guys. If one goes, and the other one is in serious trouble. Right. Uh, and some of these guys are crazy too because they have like extra long tongues, basically like a uh, like a, the, the proboscis of a of a butterfly used to uh, to get nectar from a particular flower.
4: Uh, Sue Bernard, she is uh, a lead keeper at Zoo Atlanta, has said that um, that they also are responsible for up to eighty percent of reforestation because of the seed droppings oh, wow. um, from from the fruit that they eat. Yeah, that's
2: right. The the fruit eaters. The their the whole relationship here is I give you some. Some delicious fruit, but it's yeah. got some seeds in it. If you could poop that somewhere <laughs> that would be I great. need it to grow, that would be great. And the bat's like, "Yeah, sure, I can do that."
4: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and she also said that in terms of um, pollinating, that between two and three hundred products in grocery stores are bat derived, and uh, some of those th- uh, especially are...
2: the cat food. Yeah. yeah, you have to look. It's that, it's there under chicken, beef, uh, seafood product, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> cattle byproduct, <laughs> and eventually bat.
4: Exactly. Uh, but peaches, plums, pears, yeah we, we, we wouldn't have them without bats. And speaking of the amount of fruits that they ingest, I think this is really interesting. Um, every once in a while, they will come upon um, you know, the green parts of tomato that mm-hmm. you've seen before or, or, or the green parts on a fruit. And this is not a good thing. It's a secondary plant compound. Yeah, especially
2: and, bad for lactating like, bat mothers and, yeah. uh, and pregnant bats.
4: Yeah, it can actually affect the, the development of the fetus. Um, so what happens is that, uh, these female bats, because they have consumed some of these plant compounds, mm-hmm. uh, secondary plant compounds, they will compensate the toxicity of these compounds by eating mineral-rich clay or water. And according to Dr. Christine Voigt, local people in Africa and South America um, also, some parts of Africa are familiar with the detoxic- de- detoxifying qualities of mineral-rich clay and consume it during pregnancy and lactation.
2: Yeah, you see this in uh, in, in many animals, uh, really. If, if there's an animal that is that is eating something that has some sort of toxic effects, mm-hmm. you know, they can't just turn to, to have a little tums. They have to scarf down some clay or so, some sort of dirt
0: to, to deal with it.
4: Yeah, or hang around salt licks. Yeah, yeah.
3: Zymo play.
2: All right, so let's dive into the bat colony. We've already talked about the roosting a little bit, like the, the flight advantages of it. But of course, there are other advantages to living on the roof of a cave as well. For starters, what else lives on the roof of a cave, right? Insects. Well, insects, but in terms <laughs> so so yeah, there there may be food up there, but for the most part, it's a safe place to yeah. hide out. Now, the bottom of the cave underneath where the bats are living, that, that's a different story. You can have some a baby bat falls down there an injured, or old bat plummets to the bottom of the cave. There's no telling how many things will be ready to eat it up. Um, you'll have uh, there there insects that can do this job. You'll have uh, surface animals that wander down for these eating meals, like skunks. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it was uh, I think it was uh, Planet Earth or Life of Mammals. One of the many Attenborough. Uh, Discovery Channel, BBC Co-Productions, uh, has a, a tremendous s- sequence where you see these awful skunks going down there to eat baby bats. Um, but, um, I do
4: recall in, in one of the episodes um, that, I think it was where there were three million bats, and this was in a cave in Borneo.
2: Oh, with the giant guano mountain?
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah the guano mountain, because then that, of course, is going that guano mountain is feeding uh cockroaches primarily, but mm-hmm. then cockroaches become another food source and so on and so forth. It becomes
2: um, this whole yeah, cave ecosystem that is dependent upon the bat colony, which is which is fascinating. That's that's a whole podcast in and of they itself. We spent
4: an, an entire month filming in that. Yeah. Cave.
2: Wading through the guano.
4: I mean, literally wading yeah. through it. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about these colonies a little bit. Uh, it is, of course, a very great place for bats to stay. It's cold, it's dark conditions. Mm-hmm. It's ideal for maintaining their body temperatures uh, during sleep, or what we call sleep, which is really torpor or mm-hmm. uh, hibernation. Yeah,
2: their metabolism slows down, and they've mm-hmm. even found that rabies, if a bat has rabies, it'll act slower on them during this stage. That's right, really yeah, cool.
4: yeah. Um, and it also provides cover from predators, as, as you pointed out. Um, and it is an ideal gathering spot for socializing, including mating.
2: Yeah. Uh, I should point out real quick, uh, just one more note about hanging upside down in the bat cave. Mm-hmm. If you or I were to do it, we wouldn't last that long because it would be tremendously uh, uh, painful. Uh, to, our, to muscles our muscles would be... would just have a, a time with that, and, we'd, yeah. and I'd fall, and a skunk would eat me in like uh-huh. four minutes. Tops. messy and sad. But the, the cool thing about the bats is that uh, gravity keeps their talons closed mm-hmm. instead of a contracted muscle. So the bat doesn't actually have to exert any effort to hang like that.
4: Yeah, once they basically click together, mm-hmm. uh, their talons that just they just uh, hang right there, and they don't, as you say they don't have to use any muscle energy to keep them shut. Um, and I was reading, though, that when they want to come out of it, then they do have to obviously activate their muscles in order to try to get them pried open again.
2: Yeah. So it's the exact opposite of me hanging from the roof of a cave.
4: Yes. 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 Unless you grow very large talons. Um Okay, I want to talk about socialization because I think this is really interesting. The National Environment Research Council reports that bats build long-term companionship with other individuals, and these companions are members of exclusive social groups that can last for many years. And uh, this is from Tom August from the Center for Ecology and Hydrology. And he actually built up a spider web diagram to reveal bats' social networks. And even though bats change where they sleep in the cave every few days, what he found is that they cluster with the same bats and that groups appear to be made up of 20 to 40 individuals. And researchers have also witnessed uh, territorial disputes as well as altruistic acts like bringing food to sick bat friends.
2: Yeah. They can't hunt for was themselves. That really awesome uh, to read about.
4: And bats can also use the characteristics of other bats' voices to recognize each other. Um, This is according to a study by researchers from the University of Tübingen, Germany, and the University of Applied Sciences in Konstanz, Germany. And the researchers first tested the ability of four greater mouse-eared bats distinguished between the echolocation calls of other bats. And after observing that the bats learned to discriminate the voices of other bats, they then programmed a computer model that reproduces the recognition behavior of the bats. An analysis of the model suggests that the spectral energy distribution in the signals contain individual specific information that allows bats to recognize each other, which I think was pretty fascinating.
2: So inside the cave, you have this tremendous uh, sense of uh, community. Mm -hmm. Everybody's hanging out, literally. And then when uh, the sun goes down, everybody exits the cave. And what does it look like?
4: It is amazing because it is three million bats exiting, right? Which can take a while. Um, it can actually take up to, uh, three hours. And the bats form a swirling donut shaped figure, uh, that looks like a super organism. And that's so, uh, predators are confused. Although Uh, if, if you're- It's kind of like
2: a school of fish, right? Yes,
4: exactly. And they keep, that's why you kind of see them darting about and changing direction. And, and that's what's so amazing about how that donut shape yeah, you know, continues to because, swirl because, around. because again
2: there are birds, predatory birds, the hawks, etc., that love to have themselves a little bat for dinner.
4: Yeah, yeah, actually, um, you know that doesn't really work on birds of prey like falcons because I can still just pluck them out of the air with yeah. these. But um, I do think there's interesting bat biologist Nikolay Fysoft of UNC Center for Design Innovation and in Win- at and Winston Salem State University says that when filming a bat exodus, it's just an, it's a Quite an experience because he said that you can feel the wind from thousands of wind, uh, oh, wings man. batting. If you happen to stand up in the wrong um, area, you will get hit by bats. Obviously, they don't care. Um, that that many bats exiting just changes the quality of light in that area.
2: Oh, wow. So it, the, the light dims. The light dims. The, the bats form.
4: And he said it smells atrocious. So you will get bat guano on you. You will get urine. It wow. is It is a very dramatic exit. <laughs>
2: All right, we're in the home stretch now. And uh it, it's worth noting that uh again there's so many different uh species of bats out there. And uh and some of them have uh, have really evolved uh, some 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 very interesting uh ways of getting about. Uh for instance, you do have bats that swim. Uh in fact, uh, it w- the facts are still being generated on this, but it, it looks like a lot of varieties of bats can swim if they have to. Uh, if they're under stress, if it's a obviously if it's a situation of of life or death, mm-hmm. you have bats, of course, that, that feed off of fish, mm-hmm. uh, like the ones I observed in uh, in Costa Rica. Occasionally, bats like that will wind up in the water, and they're going to need to swim for it. Whether or not they can actually outswim the things that are waiting for bats to fall in the water, that. That's kind of uh, up to nature to decide. But um, but but we have observed uh, bats th- uh, swimming even underwater yeah. in those situations.
4: And you had mentioned the bat that you guys saw. That's the greater bulldog bat. Oh, okay. And um, that it actually uses echolocation to pinpoint the ripples in the water where, say, like a minnow's fin has, has um, gone through it. And it either dives in head first or it will trawl the surface of the water with its talons.
2: Nice. Yeah. And then, of course, we mentioned the vampire bats that uh, land near the cow mm-hmm. or the sleeping uh, human, and uh, and then then creep in for the kill with their <laughs> their sexy bat crawl. But uh, but but it's not alone. There's also the New Zealand short-tailed bat, and this guy is really interesting because um, he evolved in New Zealand, uh, in which until the arrival of humans, there were no native uh, mammals other than bats. So uh, so he had a free for all pretty much. So. He actually, you and I'm, I don't know why I'm calling him a he, I should call him a she, her she. She evolved uh, so that uh, she could uh, actually move around more in the ground, feeding on terrestrial uh, invertebrates as well mm-hmm. as flying. So uh, so this particular species of bat is actually rather adept at uh, using its echolocation in the air for prey, but also using its sense of smell to uh, hunt on the ground. So I, I found that pretty pretty crazy. And yeah. I, I've seen some footage of these guys. It's really cool. They're just scampering. Um and then I mentioned earlier, I mentioned uh, the wrinkly-faced bat, who has the awesome name of Centurio Cinex. And, uh, and I believe this is the one of, uh, on our Facebook page, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Uh, a few weeks back, I posted one of these uh, old illustrations, German illustrations, uh, scientific illustrations of the various bat faces. Yeah, it's and beautiful. The, yeah, yeah. And, and the one that's, because you get to see all this just amazing diversification, and there's like one super round, wrinkly bat face that, the, it's a face that looks like a wax seal on, a, on an envelope, you know, like an old-timey <laughs> wax seal, like yeah. that kind of face. And the really uh, interesting thing about this guy is that they, they've uh, conducted studies into his uh, oddly uh, oddly-shaped skull. Because uh, it turns out he has a really powerful jaw, Mm -hmm. and uh, like more powerful than than carnivorous bats. And this is a bat that eats fruit, so it's been kind of a puzzle for scientists: like, why Why has he got this super powerful jaw if he's just dining on soft fruits? He's not even eating like hard fruits, right? So the theory is that, of course, he hasn't always depended upon soft fruits. Mm -hmm. That uh, that he's and and that's why he's retained this ability to to chew on harder uh, materials.
4: Wasn't the jaw something like 20% uh, stronger than other bat jaws?
2: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. He's a little guy, too.
4: And the face is really amazing.
2: Yeah. And, of course, we are still finding new species of bats, which I think is amazing. Like, just this month, September 2012, in eastern Africa, they discovered four new species of bats. So we're just continuing to add to our understanding of how bats work, as well as our understanding of how many bats we have.
4: It's, uh, really amazing stuff when you consider the sort of tricks that they have up their sleeve. Um, and again, we'll talk about echolocation in the next podcast, but, um, the more that we can learn about these, these creatures, I think the better off we could become, even if we can't fully understand or inhabit their mind. Right.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave you on just a couple of notes. We're going to, we're going to skip the, uh, the listener mail since I think we've gone a bit long here, but, uh, little bit of outside reading here. Uh, check out a book called After Man, colon, A Zoology of the Future by Dougal Dixon. Uh, it's actually the work of a, of a geologist um, and author. But he, uh, he it's a, like a crazy, awesomely illustrated book that is, uh, is sort of imagining what uh, life on Earth now might evolve into in the future. And there's a whole section like he, cl- he clearly loved bats and loved the ideas of, of of an animal evolving for flight Mm -hmm. and then um, re-adapting to new situations, certainly like a a winged bat in New New Zealand that also is running around on the ground, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a whole island, a fictional island he creates in it called the the Islands of Batavia.
4: Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And
2: so he, he imagines all of these crazy... Different bats, bats that live exclusively on the ground, bats that live in the trees, uh, more like, you know, sort of like getting back to their roots, and including an extra large night stalker bat called the Manambulus perhoridus, and, uh, it's about, in, the, in his uh, imagining, it's about a one and a half meters tall, and roams screeching and screaming through the Batavian forest at night in packs. So.
4: Um, there are also other illustrations of other animals, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. I, I recall seeing a bird that was mimicking a flower, and it was yes. beautifully illustrated, and it's, it's got its mouth open, and the the tongue looks like a stamen, and of course it's attracting bugs. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy great. stuff.
2: It's, it's it's as imaginative as anything you'll see in like uh, like Avatar or what have you. And then uh, also uh, check out a blog post that I did uh, a few weeks back, and I'll link to it again in the in the uh, blog post that accompanies this. Episode, but it was called Jim Trainer's Animated Worlds of Bats, World of Bats and Dinosaurs. Jim Trainer is a Chicago-based illustrator and animator who did a short film called The Bats, Uh, and it's it's really it's it's really cute, but in a way that keeps an eye on what animals really are, which I find really and really cool and really uh, enlightening. Uh, For instance. There's a, a scene, my favorite quote from it, the the bat's narrating. The bat's talking about its life in the cave. And, uh, and the bat says, One morning I echoed an enormous worm. I cried because I could not eat him all at once. God appeared to me, and she said, Sometimes you have to kill more than you can eat. Which I love because we're... Because Trainer is... Uh, he's, he's anthropomorphizing the bat you know, t- to an extent. But he's also keeping an eye on all the the animal qualities that that make up this creature and make it so unique and so perplexing and ultimately so alien to us.
4: And that was just lovely.
2: Yeah. So if you have some tidbits on bats you would like to share with us, your encounters with bats, be they frightening, be they inspiring, uh, share them with us. We would love to hear about it. You can find us on... Facebook and Tumblr. We are stuff to blow your mind on both of those. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind.
4: And you can also drop us a line at blowtheminddiscovery.com.
3: At For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Today's
0: episode is brought to you by Visible.
3: Zumo Play.